1: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Climate change threatens homes, businesses, and livelihoods. How to mitigate all that risk? By insurance. But here's the thing, climate change is threatening that industry too, and slowly making much of the planet uninsurable. And a look back at the life of Jan Ruff O'Hearn, a woman who remained silent for 50 years about being sexually abused at the hands of Japanese soldiers. But when she spoke up, she became an advocate and an example for survivors like her. First up, though, in Afghanistan this weekend voters will choose a president for the fourth time since the Taliban regime was toppled in 2001 polls in the country are never straightforward
2: or calm Tomorrow's election takes place amid total chaos. I mean, Afghanistan has been at war in some form or another for more or less 40 years now. The US and NATO have been present fighting there for a good 18 years. Edward McBride is our Asia editor. That war that they have with the Taliban has been going very badly, and the Taliban control an ever-increasing amount of territory. That fight has claimed 4,000 civilian lives in the first half of this year, according to the UN's reckoning. The election comes as the
1: government is trying to gain a foothold in peace negotiations with the Taliban. But the insurgents think the whole process is illegitimate and are threatening to disrupt the vote with more violence.
2: Even within the government, there's terrible infighting. Indeed, the election pits the two most senior government figures against one another. It's all a familiar story. The last
1: presidential election in 2014 was down to the same two men, Ashraf Ghani, the current president, and Abdullah Abdullah, the chief executive. As before, there are widespread worries about electoral fraud, even before the vote, which comes at a delicate time for the country.
2: On top of all of that, just a few weeks ago, Donald Trump called off the negotiations that were taking place between the US and the Taliban.
3: We had peace talks scheduled a few days ago. I called them off when I learned that they had killed a great American soldier from Puerto Rico.
2: And both sides, in effect, have pledged to redouble the fight. Bombings, airstrikes and ground clashes between US-backed Afghan forces and hardline Islamist groups have intensified since US-Taliban peace talks collapsed earlier this month. So the election takes place against a backdrop of considerable violence. It's a very messy picture, to say the least.
1: And one that the election itself will muddle further?
2: Well, I think one thing we can be sure of is that tomorrow will not be a calm, peaceful day. The Taliban have vowed to disrupt the poll. They don't want the elections to happen at all. They view the Afghan government that's conducting the elections as illegitimate. So we're quite sure there are going to be Taliban attacks on polling stations. There have already been Taliban attacks on election rallies and campaign headquarters and so on. 72,000 soldiers are being deployed just to guard the polling booths. And that gives you an indication of how significant the threat is. Well, quite apart from security, what about the way that the
1: poll is being conducted? Because polls in Afghanistan are themselves messy, violence aside.
2: Absolutely. So the most recent presidential elections five years ago were very much disputed. There were allegations by the losing candidate that the winner, who is now president, had cheated to secure the office. It's the same two candidates again. So there's already acrimony there. The candidate who lost last time, Abdullah Abdullah, has already said he's worried about fraud. You know, all the most basic elements of a normal election are somewhat in question. The voter rolls are suspect. The election commission's figures don't add up. There are obviously plenty of places where voting is going to be impossible because of the violence, because the Taliban will prevent voting. Something like 30% of polling stations won't even open. So there's all kinds of room to think that maybe the outcome will not be fair, will not properly reflect what Afghan voters might have wanted had they had the chance to express it more clearly.
1: Well, is that a clear distinction? Is there a candidate who is likely to win and a candidate that the people would have wanted?
2: The consensus seems to be that the incumbent president, Ashraf Ghani, will win again, if indeed he did win last time. As I say, that was disputed, but it's very likely to be a close vote. The election commission itself says it's not going to produce the results for several weeks. It may take even longer than that. And if neither of the two leading candidates achieves 50% in the first round, then there'll be a runoff in November. So there's plenty of scope for argument and recrimination for a good long time to come. I mean, what do the Afghan people make of all this,
1: though? An allegedly sham election, another one in prospect, violence all around. How will they be viewing this election?
2: It seems that there hasn't been a huge amount of enthusiasm on the campaign trail. The Taliban, as I mentioned, has bombed some rallies. The assumption is that the turnout won't be that high. And then on top of that, even if there were greater security, the fact that this election is a rerun of the previous one, the same two leading candidates, there's a sense that it's the same old lot. And therefore, the election is unlikely to change things very dramatically.
1: And how does this figure in with the negotiations that were going on between America and the Taliban, from which the government had been excluded entirely? Is this going to change the face of that dynamic?
2: Well, I certainly think that President Ghani is pleased that the elections are going ahead. And certainly if he does win, it puts him in a strong position. His argument has always been that he's the legitimate democratically elected leader of Afghanistan and that to exclude him from the talks with the Taliban was unfair. The Taliban have always said it's just a sort of puppet U.S. regime and therefore they won't talk to the Afghan government at all. They'll probably stick to that stance, although they have very slightly watered it down. But even if the Taliban don't immediately change their tack, the fact is that Ashraf Ghani or whoever it is will be affirmed as the president of Afghanistan with some kind of popular mandate. And that obviously carries some sort of moral weight, at least, when it comes to trying to decide Afghanistan's future. So I think the outcome can only be positive for the Afghan government in terms of the peace talks. But why should it make any difference to the Taliban who wins this election if they think it's a puppet regime anyway. Well, I think in the short term it won't, right? I mean, the U.S. has said the talks are off. The Taliban says they're willing to start them again, but the ball's in America's court. But I think sooner or later, America will come back to the talks. It's not going to win the war militarily. It doesn't want the embarrassment of simply abandoning the Afghan government. So assuming those talks start again... I think the scenario that we seem to be building towards until President Trump called it all off was a kind of grand peace conference that involved the Taliban and the Afghan government as sort of one of the many possible representatives of the Afghan people. Now, that's obviously slightly humiliating for the Afghan government, but the Taliban did seem to be willing to talk in a format like that with Afghan officials. And clearly, in such a forum, the main voice will be that of the Afghan government. So,
1: notwithstanding the violence that is almost certain to happen and the human cost of that, the election itself seems to be a good thing for Afghanistan?
2: I would say yes. I mean, the election is likely to be quite violent. There will likely be all kinds of questions about the results. There may be another standoff like there was last time between the two leading candidates. But... You have to put this in perspective and think where Afghanistan has come from. Twenty years ago, it was an Islamic emirate with a caliph, as it were. Girls weren't in schools, men had to grow beards, music wasn't allowed. For all the mess and imperfections and for all the doubts about where things are headed with the peace process and so on, it is remarkable that Afghanistan is still holding elections and it's remarkable that so many Afghans have the courage to vote. You know, Afghans are literally risking their lives to cast a vote and even if we aren't confident about the conclusion, in many ways it's a very encouraging story.
1: Edward, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thanks for having me.
4: Every
1: year, tens of millions of businesses buy insurance policies to protect themselves. Last year, property and casualty insurance premiums totaled nearly two and a half trillion dollars. and That number is set to rise as the climate changes.
0: This is the first time these houses have flooded, and they've been here since 1966. ...to intensify the worst of Harvey expected in the overnight hours here in the National Weather Service.
1: In 2017, Hurricane Harvey cost America a record $125 billion.
2: Hurricanes are kind of a way of life down here, but this is something different. This is uh, this is unlike anything that we've seen.
1: In the last century, a Harvey-sized storm would have been considered a once-in-2,000-years prospect. Those odds are shortening and fast. Rising sea levels, bigger storms, wildfires. Alongside the risk to life and livelihoods, climate change is putting the
4: global insurance industry in danger. The biggest challenge that climate change poses for insurance companies is the fact that very costly disasters are becoming more frequent. Matthew Favas is our finance correspondent. And what that means is that consumers of insurance companies will have to pay more and more for their policies which in the end might cause them not to buy them anymore. But insurance companies, when
1: when faced with unexpected risks, often pass that on to the reinsurers, right? The insurers that insure the insurers. Are they not essentially passing it up the food chain?
4: That's right. So insurance firms have, have their own safety nets, right? And, and quite often in the past, you've seen that whenever there's been a series of disasters, uh, the peak of losses has been taken on by reinsurers. But the thing is that they're not, they're not very happy to do that either, right? Because they, they have to fork out more money uh, and they also have limited reserves, even though they have quite a lot of capital. And what you're seeing is that nowadays, not only premiums are rising among primary insurers, but also the policies that insurers themselves are buying from reinsurers are getting more expensive. So next year, it's predicted that the cost of uh, reinsurance will rise by 5% across the board. And in regions where disasters have happened, so in California, for example, with wildfires, they could rise by between 30 and 70%. So that's enormous. So you say that premiums are already rising. Is that not itself enough to, to
1: sort of protect the industry? Is there more sort of structural change going on in the industry to, to battle what's coming in terms of climate change?
4: Well, first of all, some of them argue that it's enough, but it's just enough to, to cover their backs, but that, that's it. So it can't be sustainable if that keeps on happening. Rising premiums means that either customers will find that they don't want to pay for their policies anymore, they can't afford it, um, or insurers will decide that they need to broaden exclusions or they will cap the payouts. Or the third possibility is that regulators will put a cap on premiums and decide that there is a maximum price that insurers can charge. And some insurers may decide to quit because it's not worth uh, their while anymore. And the net result of that is that probably a lesser portion of the economy will be insured. So are insurers already seeing that happen, that that, that people at the sort of the retail and the customers themselves
1: are, are being priced out of the market?
4: Yeah, there are some areas where uh, people are being priced out of the market. Uh, and even before that, there are some areas in the world where people have, have never been covered or are very rarely covered for other reasons, either because the risks are not very well understood. So that's the case in developing countries, for example, where... Insurers feel they don't understand weather patterns well enough, but also they can't really appreciate how cities grow and, I suppose, what's at risk is evolving. But even in developed markets, quite often some risks are not insured. So, in America, for example, nine out of 10 homeowners have no flood insurance, despite half the population living near water. It's not always because insurance is too expensive, it's so because they don't think it will happen to them. I mean, it sounds like the industry's response to these increased risks is
1: simply not to take them on.
4: No, well, that's that's not qu- quite correct. I mean, this this is this is the narrative that uh, that that I suppose is, is prevailing at the moment. It's it's uh, it's kind of an easy story to tell to just say that insurers don't want to assume the risk. But in some areas, it doesn't make sense economically for them to to do that. You know, when a risk becomes too certain, it's not a matter of insuring it anymore. It's a matter of saving money to be able to pay for the losses. So in some areas of the world, insurers are not present enough because they don't really understand what's going on. And this is where more needs to happen, you know, more research to, to try and map out the risk, to estimate possible losses, these kind of things. And
1: coming back to places like America where a seemingly very large number of people are are uninsured, that's just simply a matter of people choosing not to be insured because simply they think the risk isn't, isn't theirs,
4: that the premiums aren't worth it. Absolutely, yes. It's not just a matter of price. Uh, it's also a matter of people's behaviours. So there are a number of behavioural traits that you, you can observe in most people and these partly explain why people don't get insured. So one of them is their passive risk. So, you know, if you think a risk doesn't apply to you or it's not present in your mind, you won't get protection or you won't seek to, to buy insurance. The second is inertia. We, we often suffer from inertia. Some studies have found that if you make fraud insurance a default option in most home insurance policies, you get a far higher uh, take-up. And then it's uh, also a matter of, as you say, of, of perception, and, and not always rational or quantifiable, but sometimes the language we use to speak about these events, you know, this sort of one in 2,000 years type of events. If you listen to that, you might think that if it happens one year, then, you know, you're safe for another 1,999, uh, which of course is not true.
1: Matthew, thank you very much for your time. It's been
4: a pleasure.
3: Jan Rafaheen had a secret and she kept it for almost 50 years.
1: Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor.
3: It came out from time to time in strange ways. For example, she was very afraid of going to doctors. Even when she was pretty ill, she refused to go. She hated the dark and got very uneasy as soon as she had to draw the curtains. Most strangely, she hated being given flowers. Just said, don't go to all that trouble, they're not worth it, they're so soon over, I don't want those. And this mystified Her children. Her hatred of flowers went back to the war when the Japanese had invaded the island of Java, where she and her family lived. They were Dutch colonialists, and the Dutch were all rounded up by the Japanese and put into labor camps. After that, the Japanese came to the labor camp and took her and six other girls away to a Japanese military brothel. On that very first opening night, all the new recruits, all these new girls, were given flowers. They were also given the names of flowers in Japanese, and these were put on their doors. The reason why Jan was afraid of the dark was that it was when night fell that the first officer came to her room. And as soon as he saw her there, he unsheathed his sword. She was screaming at the time, don't, don't, in Indonesian, Japanese and Dutch, every language she knew. She fought as much as she could. She kicked him in the shins. And she could hear the other girls in the other bedrooms doing the same. And in the end, she was just overwhelmed because he was much too big and heavy for her to prevail against. And when he had her totally at his mercy, he then brought the sword down and let it wander over her naked body up and down, as if he was going to kill her. And it was only when he'd finished amusing himself doing that like a cat with a mouse, she said, that he decided just to rip off the rest of her clothes and rape her. So this was the reason that she didn't like the dark ever after. It was the feeling that when darkness fell, this was what happened to her. And it did go on happening to her for the next three months, perhaps as often as ten times a night. Even the brothel's doctor, who seemed a nice enough man on service, would rape her every time she went to see him before he examined her and thus grew her fear of doctors for the rest of her life so after three months of this treatment suddenly they were released orders seemed to come from higher up that they shouldn't be kept in prostitution any longer and they were reunited with their families in the labour camp and when she saw her mother she couldn't say any more than simply state what had happened. And her mother was so outraged and devastated by this that she never said any more to her and never mentioned it again. And that was the pattern for the rest of her life until she was nearly 70. When she met the man who became her husband, she also tried to tell him. She actually wrote to him and he seemed to take it on board, but they never talked about it. So she was still in a state of total silence until 1992. That year, she was watching television and suddenly saw footage of two or three Korean war rape victims. They'd also been victims of the Japanese. And they were standing up giving testimony, very emotional testimony. And she decided she was going to do that, too. She was going to speak out. Now, the only problem with that was that she hadn't told her own daughters. So she wrote it all down, 30 pages, called The Cry of the Raped. And she put these pages in two envelopes and delivered them to her daughters. She still couldn't tell them the secret face to face. And when that was done, then she was able to go public and talk about what she had been through. Her testimony was very powerful. She testified in front of an international tribunal that was looking into Japanese war crimes. She also gave testimony to Congress. I have forgiven the Japanese for what they did to me. But I can never forget. The reason it was powerful, and she herself was slightly worried about this and felt rather guilty about it was that she was a European voice. Before that, the only women who had spoken out had all been East Asian, and there'd been the feeling in Japan that these people could be ignored, that they were not important, It was only when people from other parts of the world began to chime in that the Japanese began to feel that they should make some sort of reparation for what they'd done. She found the sheer act of speaking out made her enormously relieved and released somehow from the burden of the past. And it also had the effect that if anyone gave her flowers, she was now tremendously happy and joyful to receive them.
1: Anne Rowe on Jan Ruff O'Hearn, who's died aged 96. all for this episode of the intelligence if you like us give us a rating on apple podcasts and you can subscribe to the economist at economist.com radio offer 12 issues for 12 dollars or 12 pounds see you back here on monday